0: everyone, this is Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. First of all, I hope that you and your families are staying healthy and safe. While the pandemic continues to take a devastating physical toll around the world, we're also beginning to see the damaging effects that a pandemic can have on mental health as the world adapts to a new environment. Today, I have a phenomenal guest joining me on the Conversations podcast. Dr. Heather Monroe Bloom has an incredible resume and legacy in the fields of psychiatric, epidemiology, and public policy. She's a director of the board of Stanford University Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences and various other boards and powerful commissions, including the board of directors for RBC and the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, which she chairs. I think her perspective on mental health and human behavior will make for a fascinating conversation today It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Heather Munra-Bloom. Heather, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here today, Kelly. Really a delight. Great. Well, let's jump right in to maximize our use of your time. So tell me how you would summarize psychiatric epidemiology and why it's an important field, especially in today's world. We
1: all know how some concept of mental health, psychiatric epidemiology is really understanding how present mental illnesses in the general population over and above those who go to clinics or see a social worker or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, how many people suffer from mental health problems, what are the causes of it, what's the distribution of it, and how do we understand the really serious chronic sustained psychiatric disorders. And this is really pertinent in general because one in four people at any time around the world will be suffering from some psychiatric disorder Anxiety and depression being the most common ones, um, certainly in the Western world, but beyond that. But we know as well that in the COVID context, young adults in particular are experiencing a big rise. You think about all the young kids going off to college now and trying to date in a world of uh, distancing and all those sorts of things, um, challenges in connecting to family. But the pandemic is creating mental health challenges right across age groups, social groups and uh, cultural groups. So it's hugely important right now. It's important in so many aspects of
0: the world today, but I I do want to focus on the pandemic and coronavirus. And as you said, especially with the younger generations, it's very hard for them. But since the beginning of the year, since the beginning of the, really the pandemic, the whole world's been really focused on the physical effects that coronavirus has on our immune system, understandably so. But at, at what point did you start to think about the subsequent mental effects that, not only the COVID-19, but the sheltering in
1: place, as you said, would have on society. I was really aware of it when I came back from a meeting in the United States at the end of February and went into uh, speaking on a national panel in person with a big audience the beginning of March. And I remember sitting thinking this would be my last meeting in a big group like this in a long time. It was just like one of those pre-conscious thoughts. But I had no idea how lockdown would happen, you know, in our neck of the woods, virtually yet, right after that. Let me ask you, when,
0: way back when, when you were studying about this, did you actually, did they actually prepare you for what life would be in a pandemic? Was that as a bank, we actually had to run drills. Now it's never the same as what you think it's going to be, but are there any studies, anything you look like that can compare to what
1: the world is like today? Well, certainly the, the companies I'm involved with today had all done some kind of pandemic pre-trial. No one, as you say, anticipating what it would be like. But I actually, and it says something about my age, I guess, had polio as a child, one of the last global pandemics. And I, I got polio as a toddler the year that the Salk vaccine was was created. So if you think about influences on life that you're not conscious about, I would say that, and then psychiatry, both were formative for me. But we had uh, in Toronto, a big experience with SARS. And prior to that, of course, HIV, that was really challenging, because of all of the social judgments. You know, we see this happening in a geopolitical way now. But back then, it was on an individual to individual basis on groups of people in our own communities, and then again, some of that ambiguity about how to be safe. That was great fodder for epidemiologists to really work out protocols, to build them into public health uh, methodology. And one of the things we've seen is the, the countries that have figured that out and can act uniformly are the ones that are moving ahead and managing their cases and getting, you know, not back to normal as we knew it, but getting the economy back, productive, moving in the right direction, and building in some of the learning that actually can make us better as we come out of it. And I'm sure we'll touch on inequality, but but that's one thing that really comes to the fore in a, in a pandemic. And I know the States has been really grappling with this.
0: It definitely has. And you can tell, you can see, we've talked about around the world, you can just see those countries that dealt with it in a different way and are getting back to their new normal much, much more than we've been able to in the U.S., certainly in, in certain parts of it. So and And it's been quite an adjustment, as you said. I mean, we've we've now it'll it's seven months, so we're going on a year pretty soon. And I think for're getting used to keeping a physical distance, you know, living mostly in our homes. So talk a little bit about what what impact does this have on lifestyle and that
1: lack of human interaction have on one's mel- mental health? So um, I mentioned anxiety and depression. Those are the most immediate responses from a mental health perspective. and, they're intense. So you asked me how did I first kind of come to that moment of thinking about mental health? I see myself as a very resilient, energetic, productive person, and I must say, two weeks into quarantine, which I was in at that point in March, I found myself getting anxious and antsy, and and you know being normally good tempered, getting short and bossy, and you can be bossy on, on video. You know, in virtual means as much as you can be bossy in person. And we we all have our own coping mechanisms. And so, one of the things is to understand, and this is something we, we did learn in psychiatry how do you cope? What are your symptoms? We all have symptoms when we're under stress, and they can go from, you know, showering too often to not showering often enough, just to give one, you know, common example, to really having mood changes, to having sleep disturbance, to having appetite and eating disturbances. And so recognizing that is absolutely the first thing to do. And then on, I'm an optimist perennially, but I do believe there is going to be a new normal that is going to have a new distancing. Certainly the hygiene and distancing elements are going to be longstanding. And for those of us who've worked in Asia over the last two decades, you know, it's always weird your first time going into China or Japan to see people walking around with masks. Well, I think this is going to be part of our new normal. And I think it should be expected as well that there will be other pandemics with global mobility and the eagerness to get back on planes as fast as people can. This is just going to be, it's going to be a consequence. So, so finding ways to live life fully within some of the constraints that we face and not saying, you know, I'm stuck, but what am I going to do to realize this fully? Finding those ways, not saying I can't see my friends, not saying I can't see my family, children and parents being constrained, but doing it, not saying I'm just going to abandon caution because I can't take it anymore. And then being forgiving with each other, being really forgiving with yourself is absolutely key. And then you'll you'll know this. And I, I've been a bad ad all my life because I... Up, up until very recently thrived on four or five hours of sleep a night, I thought and loved it and thought it was part of what made me productive and successful. The fact is we know so much about brains now, brain repair and sleep and all those neurochemicals that affect our mood depend on sleep and repair time and getting, no matter what you think you can do, not being a hero and getting the sleep you need at night Drinking a lot of water, there's some evidence that flushing is really important now. And sitting in front of uh, video screens is tough on the brain and the eyes and fatigue and getting up. You know, what they say 20, 20, 20, every 20 minutes you have to move look 20 feet out in the distance and take longer than 20 seconds to, to do that. So planning your, your life around that. I mean, this sounds so mom and apple pie, but it's so easy not to do any of it.
0: Those are great advice. I've definitely learned um, that sleep is critical. And I, I agree with you on all of those, all those points. Will we ever shake hands again? Maybe not.
1: Yeah, yeah. You no. Know? I, I think we won't. And if you look at social customs in the developing world where there's much greater familiarity with pandemics and epidemics, you can see a lot of the social customs have been adjusted around not contaminating each other. I was reading a research study
0: that Harvard School of Public Health did back in April on mental health. And you probably know, but one of the recurring themes that emerged was that more people were beginning to experience increased feelings of anxiety and fear. And they found that it's not just coming from self-isolation, but from not a big surprise to me, following the coronavirus media frenzy for too many hours throughout oh the day, my. right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Is that what do you think the most damaging, you
1: know, is during a pandemic for our for our mental health? Look, I would say absolutely turning off the news is a real good idea. And again, back to the point of the you've you've all seen the stress hierarchies, right? Death in a family, divorce, these kinds of things, house move, but pretty close behind that is this uncertainty about big events that are going to impact you. And when they're collective and there aren't people who have answers, whether you feel you have access to that recourse or not, that is really tough. And there's so much speculation and then politicization that goes on. Like, just take a break. You cannot be immersed in making yourself an expert on COVID-19 or you will go crazy. And, and scientists and public policy people themselves have to have a big step back in order for us to get
0: to the to the right place. So what do you recommend for people to do who are struggling to stay happy and positive with all of that coming at them besides turn it off, which I, I do think that, that we
1: should all do from time to time? But you have to turn it off and then substitute something that's nourishing, mm. that isn't a big apple pie. <laughs> that thing. Otherwise, <laughs> <you're>, you know... <laughs> What do you do?
0: Um, so I'm a big fan of meditation. And then for me, working out is the, uh, is the, is the biggest probably form of, of relaxation and just disconnect for me. And then the final thing I have done, I don't know, I find that, and I never used to do this, but I find
1: reading a little bit of fiction Absolutely. at night turns my brain off. Absolutely. No devices around your bedtime, right? And now, now they're really saying two hours before if you want to have a sleep. And reading fiction is the best. How many pages do you do before you con? I'm definitely sleeping like four or five. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That, then it's doing the trick. But I would say also connection with nature is really, and you know, there's been a run on pets that's unprecedented because the ability to nourish others is so gratifying when we're feeling fragile ourselves and finding ways of doing that. And even if it's, you know, taking time and every day to phone one friend or FaceTime with one friend, connect with them, reach out to someone, and then just get out into nature when you can. And you've got such beautiful spots around L.A. to do that.
0: We're so lucky. Um, I've gotten very into hiking, so I think that helps. And I think those are great recommendations because. And
1: the, the main, if I can just say, Kelly, setting goals, because as I say, these things sound like platitudes, You only benefit if you can change your behavior to do them and you don't need to do everything all at once, but having an everyday nourishing time, nurturing time, and time when you are disconnected from all of the out there, but connected into giving something to someone else is so important this is so empirically demonstrated. Oh, that's a good one. that
0: That's uh, my, my friend, Arianna Huffington, always tells me micro steps. Just write it down. She has a little... Yeah, mouth. exactly.
1: Exactly. And And now it's really important to have those steps for every day. Just t- take your two things that you're going to do but keep doing them, keep doing
0: them. Those are good. That's great advice. All right, so I wanna I want to look forward into 2021 and beyond because eventually I hope we'll somewhat come out of this. Um, I, I know no one is certain what the world's gonna return to in the future, uh, even beyond a vaccine, which we're all rooting for, or some other milestone that effectively makes us feel like we've conquered and gotten control of the coronavirus. And most experts, not, I won't say most, many experts think the world will never return to what it used to be in terms of travel, et cetera. What do you think that, we as as humans will mentally experience in the next phase, which maybe I'll call post-pandemic for now?
1: I think post-pandemic is a big cutoff that it's hard to relate to right now. Um, I would say that. So it is something like a new normal in a different phase of this health uncertainty and, and viral contamination. And people are going to travel again. There's no question about it. People are already starting to do it. You know, it's back to testing out and there's some risk assessment, personal risk assessment, based on, on who you are, your health, uh, what, you, what you have at stake, all of those. So they are going to be judgments used all the time. And I'm a big fan of taking personal judgment and not just going rules-based on everything. Because if you're rules-based, you do over-limit or overexpose. Um, it's, just, it's just a fact. But if we go to 21, if I predict to a year from now, I think there is still going to be a lot of constraint as we knew the old world. And so what will be the new developments that will help us feel fulfilled? And I think there will be a lot of move to bubble kinds of living, that are, there will be a reframing of social organization with more discipline around understanding who you're spending your intimate time with. I mean, intimate in the psychological way and, and of course, in the physical way, too. Because there's just a mass of natural experiments happening right now. And I think that the tough one that we're seeing in in Canada, of course, is that the warm weather, another advantage for L.A., um, if people are sensible, the warm weather took down the, the viral toxicity. But cold weather brings that back up. And we've had, you know, all of these young people, take Toronto and Montreal, our two biggest cities, who had a lot of physical freedom over the summer, who now have to go back into constraints. And that is going to be tough. And I think we have to be very creative about thinking about how to keep people physically together without the exposures. And I think if you fast forward a year from now, we'll see a different configuration of social space, working space, family space than what we have now. And and that leads then into the whole theme of inequality. And those who have the opportunity to reconfigure, or have organizations they're affiliated with where uh, reconfiguration will happen for them, and those who who don't have that, and then it's going to be a bit of a crapshoot as it is today for people who don't have options about crowding, about uh, hygiene. That's
0: true, and, and and this pandemic, if as we've said, it's just really made clear the amount of inequality. I mean, if if anything kind of opened it up more and made it even more
1: obvious, it's pretty stark. You know, my hope is that the engagement with inequality that's emerged certainly in the Western world, and let's just say in our two countries, Canada and the U.S., will be sustained. And it really depends on enlightened, committed leadership, and Kelly, you're formidable in that regard, and then really having a community of people who wanna understand what they don't know about inequality and to listen hard to what people who feel left out feel will give them an edge to participate. And that could be a silver lining in this whole pandemic context. Yeah, if we keep that going, I keep
0: saying it's, it has to be a movement, not a moment. So continuing. Great. way, And so I, I always love to end on a positive note with every episode in our conversation series. So what are you most hopeful for, Heather?
1: I'm really hopeful for more creativity and innovation to become built in with organizations and families drawing on everybody to fuel that innovation, reorganization, and kind of continuous uh, problem solving, but also foresight and creativity. And then that we will, you know, for a lot of us who've lived our work lives, you know, a woman of my generation, I mean, the idea that you would actually have a deep conversation about work-life balance... Uh, you know, didn't, didn't didn't really feature. And, uh, you know, I see my daughter, who's a great professional, but with her 10 month old baby saying, you know, I mean, she had a baby, and then the pandemic came. And, uh, and so she and her husband, you know, they did lockdown for six months, and then we formed a, a bubble. But she's been, you know, a great role model to me, this intergenerational learning is fantastic. And so I really feel that, that it's, it's created a new empathy platform um, in its own way for each of us. And if we can draw on that, learn from it, and not feel like you're in a fixed position, but there's a lot of flexibility to the way we can express ourselves, nurture ourselves, and be nourishing to those around us and do work and live in ways that makes a difference. That's pretty great. You know, so I'm, I'm hugely optimistic for that.
0: That's true. That's, that's incredible. That's a greatly positive way to end this. So thank you so much, Heather, for having this. Thank you,
1: Kelly. And uh, all good wishes to you and all the colleagues. You, you run a great place and, and you're terrific.
0: Thank you for listening to our conversation with Dr. Heather Monroe-Bloom. And Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. To learn more about City National Bank, please visit cnb.com.